Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Hello and welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you a science-based inside look at the cosmetic industry. This is episode 215. I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and with me today, all the way from sunny California, is Valerie George. Hello, Valerie. Hello, hello, hello. Well, we've got a few interesting questions to cover today, and actually, we're going to do a practically all hair uh, broadcast. What do you think of that, Valerie? All hair. Well, I love hair, so I'm incredibly excited to answer all of the questions we have going on today. And we've got a question topically related to the pandemic. Can the coronavirus survive on your hair? What does it mean when a permanent color says that it's not for gray hair? Can ingredient technology really justify an extra price point, a higher price point? Is carnauba wax bad for hair, and does argan oil penetrate the hair shaft or do anything useful on the hair? (laughs) And we do have one uh, beauty science news to cover, too. But first, Valerie, it's a pandemic. How are you? I haven't talked to you in like a week. Yeah, doing good. Um, Survived the first full week of being home alone, locked up with Mr. Cosmetic Chemist, Uh and I tell you what, in talking to some of the chemists at work, you know, we're all working from home, our lab is closed. I feel like this should be a really good deterrent for crime because people are feeling so trapped and, ah, you know, just even spending one week like in their own apartment or their own home. And they have lots of like stuff to entertain them and they're bored and kind of just over it. Imagine what it would be like to be in jail. So I, I feel like this could be a good deterrent for crime because if you don't like this, you're not going to like prison. So you you feel a little bit like you're in prison now, <laughs> or like you imagine well, prison would be. Yeah, well, you know, if if you met Mr. Cosmetic Chemist, you, you figure it out. He's he's pretty strict. So. Oh, I I gotcha. Well, I'm I'm doing all right here, and actually. Uh, the missus is home, working from home uh, here with me too, but. You know, she and I have very similar work styles where we just work and don't talk. <laughs> so it's like it's like quiet as a mouse in the house. Oh no, uh, Mr. Cosmetic Chemist works in the music industry, so he's like the opposite of me. I have to work in complete silence. Oh my! Well, I see that you finished reading another book. Yeah, um, my goal of fifty-two books. If you guys remember us talking about our goals on the show a few weeks ago. I have a goal to read 52 books this year. I actually have read um, quite a bit more books than I'm posting on my personal Instagram account, cosmetic underscore chemist. Uh, I'm not posting the trashy ones. Sometimes I read like really trashy detective novels. It's like quick reads, really good entertainment. Um, So my goal is to read 52 kind of meaningful books um, in the nonfiction realm. Nice. So yeah, this most recent one was The Library Book by Susan Orlean, and it was a fantastic read. It was about the 1987 library fire at the city of Los Angeles' Central Library, and it was also about wow. how the library system started in L.A. and just about library systems in general. And it could be kind of boring if you're like, oh, libraries are boring, but it actually was a really interesting look just about books and human history in general, so it was pretty good. 
Well, during this pandemic, I've had some extra time to read too, and I was uh, I'm tackling Gone with the Wind, which is an interesting. Oh, yeah, it's a very interesting and entertaining book. Yeah, that's great. What a classic. It is. All right, shall we get to some beauty science news? Sure. Well, in non-virus microbial news, I did find this one story about scientists who have discovered a new species of bacteria that can eat a certain type of plastic. Turns out researchers in Germany have found a bacteria that can degrade some of the chemical building blocks of a plastic called polyurethane. Now, polyurethane has a few cosmetic applications, but most notably, it's uh, one of the plastics that can be used for making masks, and it also is purportedly used as a styling polymer in uh, hair styling products. Yeah, I love using polyurethane. Uh, It's very light, very thin, very flexible, so you can get a lot of really nice modern type hold and polish to the hair. It's a, a great polymer to use. Unfortunately, one of the problems with the polyurethane is that um, it's difficult to recycle uh, because it's a a thermosetting polymer, and so it doesn't really melt that well when it's heated. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so while it gets uh, rinsed away down the drain, it might build up in the environment, or if it's just thrown in the garbage like a mask, uh, then it just uh, fills up landfills and it doesn't break down. So this uh, bacteria is able to break down that polymer, and this is a really a good thing because, you know, even recycled plastics eventually end up in landfills, and if we mm-hmm. can find microorganisms that can break down those plastics to more simple carbons, then we might be able to get some true sustainability when it comes to plastics. This might even uh, have some helpful benefit for fighting the microplastic problem that's out there. Yeah, there was actually a bacterium discovered maybe four years ago in Japan that was found to eat uh, PET, which is pretty incredible as well. I I feel like in the past few years, there's been a lot of work in this area to consume plastics because it is such a perpetual problem. There is a lot of controversy in this because uh, some organizations are saying, well, you know, just throwing a bunch of bacteria in the water to eat the ocean plastic isn't as easy as it sounds and isn't really a solution. So I think um, we will start to see, I think we'll start to see a lot of work being done in this area. One of the other challenges is in landfills, those tend to be anaerobic environments. So finding a bacteria that can consume and metabolize plastic in this environment without oxygen will be really important. That bacteria discovered a few years ago um, is an aerobic bacteria. So wouldn't necessarily uh, work in a landfill. But anyway, I I think this is definitely an area to keep our eyes on for the future. Although, on the other hand, you don't really want bacteria eating your pets, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, (laughs) Oh, Perry. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, of course... um, if the bacteria were good enough to eat eat through these this packaging, right, plastic packaging and things, that could also be a bad thing because then they start eating the bottles when they're on the store shelves, and that could be bad. So, so it's really yeah. this this area is an interesting one uh, as far as research goes and potential future uh, solutions. But like you said, there could also be some downsides. Oh, for sure. Well, I did not have any beauty news today. I'm doing a little boycott in the news just because so much of 
my feed is filled up with COVID information. And even in the beauty news sector, it's very hard to dissect out things that aren't related to the coronavirus just because it's having such a big impact on our industry. Wait, we don't want to report on another story about hand sanitizers? <laughs> I got every <laughs> everything is about hand sanitizers. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. So instead of beauty news, I do have something I want to share. It's, it's just a little piece of something interesting that we got from one of our listeners from Instagram. I can't pronounce her user handle, uh, but one of our listeners told us, Hey, I was listening to a show you guys did. You were talking about the supplement industry and how it's virtually unregulated. If you want to hear someone dump on the supplement industry, the second season of the Dream Podcast is dedicated to that. So needlessly to say, I went to iTunes, which is how I listen to my podcast, and I downloaded season two of the Dream, and I cannot wait. Oh my, I'm going to have to give check that one out. Yeah, I'd love to hear somebody bust on the supplement industry. <laughs> Yeah. I once went to a seminar and it was a gentleman from not a supplement company. I mean, it's, he works in the beauty industry and they happen to do some supplements and, you know, his talk was like, Hey, the supplement industry isn't as unregulated as you think. We've got some rules. And uh, it was just kind of interesting because, well, you know, I, I think that's open to interpretation. So I'm really interested to see what this dream podcast has to say. Maybe next week we could report on it. Yeah. I think that'd be a great idea. Well, shall we get on to our beauty questions? Ooh, yes. Hair, 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 hair. We're going to kick off with an audio question because it's timely and, you know, hopefully in a few months this won't be a good question anymore, but it is a good question now. This one comes to us from Patty. Hi, my name is Patty. My question is in regard to the potential of COVID-19 to sit in my hair. We know that the virus has the viability of remaining on a surface for hours and maybe even days, depending on the surface. I only wash my hair a couple times a week, mostly to protect from dryness and damage and to curb the progressive slippage of my tape extensions. I have long hair and I do touch my hair a lot throughout the day. I may be incorrectly extrapolating here, but this is my question. Considering the hygiene recommendations by health authorities, would you recommend I wash my hair on a daily basis? Thank you, guys. All right, very interesting there. And really, it's a question that I it didn't occur to me, but this is a pretty good question. Yeah, I would say it's definitely uh, something to think about. I know a lot of people talk about viruses living on surfaces and areas outside of the body. And that could include fabrics, it could, could include hard surfaces, um, but we often don't think about our hair. You know, I remember studying uh, microorganisms in school, and viruses are one of those things where they're not really living, but they're sort of living. They're they're very interesting. Uh, I don't know. Would you call it an organism, or would you call it a particle? I would. I think that's a really good question, because on one hand, they can sustain some form of, we'll call it, quote-unquote, life. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it can't sustain life on its own. It needs a host to be able to live and replicate. So I would call it a, what's, what's a word where we could put particle and organism together? Uh, organism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <So>. An orgical. <laughs> orgical. <laughs> That's right. Well, to answer this question, I want to st first start out and say, now we're not doctors and this really isn't our areas of expertise. I know I did study biochemistry while I was in college, 
but I'm so far removed from that. And it was had nothing to do with like epidemiology, which is the kind of question this really addresses. I took uh, immunology with medical school students when I was in grad school, and I did do a lot of learning about viruses and, and how they live in the body, but this wasn't really something that we talked about at all. Yeah, and it's not surprising to me that this seems like the kind of knowledge that is like, well, I'm not sure anybody really knows the specific answer to it. Um, this virus is so new, and there hasn't been a lot of research done on specifically, you know, can it live on this surface or that surface, and how long, and and there's that word live again. Is it really living? <laughs> um but we do know that viruses can live on hair, so it's not really an unreasonable concern to think about whether the virus is on your hair or building up there. Uh, so I would, I would say if you're not leaving the house, you probably don't have to worry about washing your hair. Uh, it's not like the virus is floating around in your house and sticking on your hair and then you're going to contaminate yourself. So, of course, unless there's someone else in your house who has the virus, um, you probably don't have to worry so much if you're just cooped up in your house all day. Yeah, I've read that viruses just in general, not in particular related to the coronavirus, they tend to live longer on harder surfaces and more short-lived on fabric surfaces. And the hair would be more like a fabric. Correct. Yeah. Now, if you do go outside and you wanted to be ultra safe, you probably should start washing your hair every day. I mean, it's unlikely that you're going to spread the virus through getting it on your hair uh, because you'd have to first get it on your hair and then you have to touch your hair and then you have to touch your face. And, you know, that's just not a very efficient way to pick it up. However, you know, at least one healthcare expert says that you should. Dr. Adam Friedman, the interim chair of dermatology at the George Washington School of Medicine and Health Sciences, he recommends daily hair washing during this pandemic. So this might be a good time to wash your hair, you know, and I am actually proof positive that you can't wash your hair too much. Back in 2005, I had the most shampooed head in America, washing my head 1,500 times that year. Yeah, well, sometimes it's better to uh, be safer than sorry, so can't hurt. Certainly in a pandemic. Our next question comes from Carolina. She says, Hi, Beauty Brains. Why is it that some permanent hair colors say that they are not for covering gray hair? I have been using L'Oreal Sparia, and it seems to cover my gray, though honestly, I don't have a ton of gray yet. But I'm over 40. The writing is on the wall. I noticed that on the L'Oreal website, they recommend other lines specifically superior preference and excellence for covering gray. In general, what is different about dyes that are recommended for covering gray hair? I'm interested in using the least damaging product that works. Thanks. Yes, gray hair, you know, I, I actually don't have too many myself on the sides, and I'm, boy, I'm over five decades. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah. yeah. Well, some people are over two decades and they have gray hair, and some people are over five, but... Yeah. In general, when you're formulating hair color from a chemist's perspective, I generally try to formulate it for two different groups of people. One is the people that are 0 to 50% in gray hair. That means if they had 1,000 hairs on their head, 500 of them or less would be gray, and they're usually interspersed evenly throughout. 
The second group of people I formulate color for are people with over 50% gray hair, and more specifically, if you have 75 to 100% gray hair. The reason I have to formulate hair color this way is because when you have only a partial portion of gray hair, you have regularly pigmented hair that you have to incorporate with the gray hairs themselves. So you can't have something that's so high coverage, you're covering the grays, because then your natural hair that you've lifted and deposited new color into will be so dark and dense that you're going to get a lot of highs and lows and dimensions. So you typically go a little softer on hair that's 50% or less so that it's more gray, really good gray blending. And then if someone is 100% gray hair, you formulate with a higher dye load, you typically have a more brown-based color, and it tends to be more drab looking. And I use the term drab in, it covers the whole color spectrum to make sure that you don't see any of those little highlighter hairs, which would be your gray hair. Are you making a crack about my brown hair again? (laughs) (laughs) And additionally, uh, you may tend to use more hydrogen peroxide or more alkalizer, like more ammonia, or maybe even ammonia and monoethanolamine in combination to get really ultra high gray coverage. Now, L'Oreal is probably recommending superior preference or excellence for covering gray hair because they are more targeted towards that 50 to 100% gray look, maybe even 75 to 100. So it's probably a more brown, less dimensional result. L'Oreal Feria is actually a pretty dimensional color, meaning um, you want some highs and lows in it because it makes it just not so evenly colored or kind of inky colored. There's a little dimension and shine to the look because with your um, gray hair, it's kind of like getting a little free highlight, some free dimension. I actually, when I used to color my hair with box hair color, back in 2003, a long time ago, I haven't colored my hair in in many, many, many years, uh, but I actually used to prefer L'Oreal Feria because it was so dimensional looking and could look so natural for somebody who did not have a lot of gray hair. It didn't look like you were using box color. However, I could see very easily that if you had over one over 50% gray hair, for sure 75% to 100% gray hair, Faria may give you hot looking hair where the hair is really kind of translucent looking. So with hair color, it's important to look for colors specifically designed for high gray if you have high gray. If you don't have high gray, you're fine to use um, any hair color whatsoever. But I personally endorse L'Oreal Feria because I've used it and I've liked it in the past. So there really is a technology difference between coloring non-gray hair and gray hair. Oh, for sure. And it's not necessarily anything magic. We all have access to the same ingredients, but it's the way we put those ingredients into a product that determines whether or not it's for really high gray or someone with a low amount of gray hair. Is there a significant difference between hair colors for gray hair versus someone who's uh, blonde? I think the approach is similar because you're lacking pigment within the hair fiber. Right. And you need to add new pigment in. Blonde hair is not totally devoid of pigment, so you do get what I call some background to the hair. With gray hair, there it's... There, there's nothing to provide a canvas to paint. It's like if you were to paint a completely white wall red or some really rich color, you may need to prime the wall first to allow one to two coats of paint versus many, and you're not getting the saturation of paint on the wall that you need. 
blonde hair kind of already has this primer built in, albeit not a lot of it. It does have some of this natural canvas built in, so you could more easily cover over it. Whereas gray, you need to choose a formulation that has what the same thing as natural pigment would be added to the hair. I call that background, or many companies call that background color. It's just really a primer foundation to put more color on top of. Gray hair doesn't have that. Right. Gray hair has like no pigment at all, where blonde hair has just just a light level of pigment. Exactly. Yep. All right. Excellent. Thanks for that question. Let's move on to our next question. This comes to us from Kara. She says, Hi there. I recently listened to your episode that addressed whether you could get ingredients of a higher quality, which I found really interesting. I have read from some brands that they can justify a higher price point because of the quote, technologies that they use uh, in their product rather than the ingredients. For example, a company might decrease the size of the hyaluronic acid molecule so that it can penetrate deeper into the skin and therefore be more effective. Is something like that true? Well, great question. Uh, So we did talk about that on the show. And I think in the case of higher quality, we were saying that if you had brand A, which is sold, you know, for a few bucks at Walmart and brand B, which is sold for several hundred dollars at a high-end skincare store. And both of them are using hyaluronic acid. There is like unlikely any quality difference in the hyaluronic acid that would make one inferior to the other, separate from the technology aspect, meaning it's not like one hyaluronic acid is destined for a trash can and the other really is ultra premium, right? They're, they're the same quality, but there can be different technologies of the same type of ingredient available that, you know, I, th- I think is different from what you and I mean by quality. Yeah, I think one of the things that cosmetic marketers try to make it seem like is, you know, let's, let's uh, liken this to food. If you go to a store and there are some apples that are kind of rotten and some that are perfectly new, clearly there's a quality difference there. There isn't the same kind of quality difference when you're talking about cosmetic raw materials. There's just the raw material, right? Yeah. Now, as far as whether companies can get different technologies or different quality ingredients, there are some cases where companies do have specialized ingredients that only they can get. For example, a company can patent an an ingredient, and uh, the the biggest patenter in the cosmetic industry is L'Oreal. They try to patent everything. (laughs) Oh, yeah. They have departments and departments just ready to patent everything, and not necessarily because they invented something, but they're trying to uh, clean up the competitor space and prevent people from having technologies. But I, I digress. I'm sorry for <laughs> no, you're, over you're on right. that one. <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah. They, uh, L'Oreal definitely has a ton of patents where they've clearly done it not not because they want to launch a product with that technology and used in that way. They just want to make sure nobody else can use a technology in that way. So, and and L'Oreal also has some patents which I would say are probably useful. Probably their their biggest recent patent is on the the Mexerol uh sunscreen that they have. So they patented a sunscreen and they're the only ones who are able to use it. It's an extra UVA inhibitor. And so it's it's a molecule that they can they can get. Now, this isn't the case typically with your salon brands or your you know spa skincare brands that were started by someone who uses a contract manufacturer. They really don't put the money into or the research into finding ingredients that they can patent. And so 
having patented ingredients to set yourself apart is only something that most of the big companies will do. Although uh, there was that company, Living Proof, they they had some patented materials, and then I think the Olaplex people have their patents. So there are companies that can have patents, but in general, most brands in the cosmetic industry are not using specially patented ingredients that only they can use. But that's different. Having a technology is different from having a quality, unless the technology really is something special, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. When we're talking about if if you have two two brands that have the same ingredient name on them, as a consumer, there's no way that you would know that there's a quality difference. And one brand cannot legitimately say that they have higher quality ingredients than the other brand because both brands have access to the same ingredients. Mm-hmm. Now there is another case where a company can get a specialized ingredient made for them. And so you can go directly to a supplier and say, hey, we want a specialized ingredient. Uh, We did that with the VO5 brand. Uh, We had an ingredient that was made specifically for us called Hydratine. Yeah, Hydratine was a blend of some amino acids that some supplier would blend for us exclusively, right? It was part of the VO5 story. And we were the only company that could buy Hydratine. And we dropped it in our formulas. Now, the ingredient was specially made for us specifically for marketing reasons. There was nothing about hydratine that any consumer would ever really notice, but it did allow us to have a story that we could talk about. And so you'll see companies do that pretty often. You could have a supplier make you a special blend of an ingredient, give it a a trade name, and then you could talk about it on your packaging. But from a consumer standpoint, that's not really going to affect the performance of the products that you're putting together. I would say mostly, yeah. Mm. So the bottom line on this is that still, no, companies really can't get higher quality ingredients versus their competitors, even if they're saying that. And if if there was any kind of quality difference between the ingredients, that's just definitely not something a consumer would be able to tell a difference in. Well, our next question comes from Glow. Such a cool name. I'm really envious. Hello, team. I recently started following you all. I thoroughly appreciate all of the info you provide. My questions. How beneficial is Carnuba Wax for hair? Does it have a detrimental effect on hair? Having curly hair, I see this often in products I use. I'm curious because I also see it listed in my Meguiar's Car Wax, too. Thanks. Glow. Oh, wait, you're putting car wax on your hair? (laughs) (laughs) Well, carnauba wax, let's talk about that a little bit because you definitely see it not only in hair products, car products, household products. Lipsticks, right? (laughs) Lipsticks, you see it in vitamins. It really is a hugely beneficial product to multiple industries. It is plant-based. And I think at the end of all of this, you'll see that you don't have to worry that it's in something you ingest or put on your skin or polish your car with. So it's just a very versatile ingredient. Yeah. Carnuba wax is a wax derived from a palm tree, Copernica serifera, native to northeastern Brazil. It first appeared in literature in 1648 when the Dutch sent two botanists to that region to talk about the fauna and flora that are present, and they provided some of the first written descriptions of the tree's properties. I read a really excellent paper about the history of carnauba wax called Carnauba Wax, 
product of a Brazilian palm. You see, this is the type of stuff that we do for our listeners. Although, I'm <laughs> yeah. sure you loved it, though. <laughs> I did. I did love it. Uh, but it was in the journal Economic Botany, and uh, it was a fantastic uh, paper. So if you're interested, I, I can share that with you guys. Uh, so essentially, uh, it does come from a palm tree in natively northeastern Brazil. The wax is harvested when they pluck the leaves from the tree. They dry the leaf and then they beat the wax from the dried leaf and and separate the wax out from there. Don't worry, uh, they do leave some of the leaves on the tree to preserve the trees for the following harvest season. So they don't cut the tree down or anything like that. It's just simply deleafing the tree to a certain degree, drying the leaf, getting the wax off. So no trees are killed to get your carnauba wax. Yeah, which is great. I actually um, did not know that. Yeah. So the wax procured from the leaves is composed mostly of free fatty alcohols and esters. Carnuba wax has one of the highest melting points of natural waxes that we use in personal care with a melting point of 81 to 86 degrees Celsius. That's pretty high. Yeah, that, that is. Yeah. So there are three grades of carnuba, each having to do with the purity of the wax. There's one, three, and four. Uh, I could never figure out why they didn't have a grade two, but maybe there is, and I just didn't read about it in the literatures that I looked up. But most of it has to do with the purity. And when you use different purities of plant-based materials, they tend to be different colors. And in fact, uh, purity one, which is the lightest color wax, is mostly used in personal care, but you can even get some really dark green to brown carnauba waxes. What's really great about this wax is that it has a super high melting point, which helps formulators use this wax to improve thermal stability of the product. When you improve thermal stability, that means you've raised the overall melting point of a formulation. So if you, let's say, have a lip balm or maybe even your Meguiar's car wax and you leave it in your car on a hot day, it's not going to melt so easily because the carnauba has such a high melting point that it'll keep everything put together. Yeah, and what one of the problems is that when a product does melt like that, then the ingredients start separating, and then when it re-hardens, you don't have a, a nicely distributed formula, so it doesn't work the same way as when you first bought it. Yeah. As a formulator, you would use carnauba wax in products where the product needs to be stiffer, thicker, or have better pickup. Maybe you want it to spread differently. Carnauba wax is also a really good film former. So when you have a nice even film, you get better shine. So when you use Carnuba, you can tend to improve the shine of a product. That's also why you'll see it used in polishes for your shoes or for your car. You'll also find it in candles because of the high melting point or in other protective coatings because of its film forming properties. It also adds a little emolliency and skin protection properties to formulas. And that's why you'll find it in lip balms. Yeah, overall, it's a nice ingredient. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. A little carnauba is great in hair products because it can help give the product or even the hair, depending on how much you use, a little, I'd call it natural shine. I wouldn't say it's super glossy, but most importantly, we use it to improve the rheology of a product. I can't think of any negative impact on hair itself other than that carnauba could be difficult to wash out of the hair because it is a wax and it's just made of fatty alcohols and esters, or I should say compose, it's not made of, um, it may be difficult to wash out of the hair. It's pretty hydrophobic. So I don't think that's something a good shampoo couldn't fix, however, um, but I don't actually think it's going to damage the hair or anything like that. I mean, I suppose if you put too much on, it could weigh your hair down, but 
Yeah. If you have fine curly hair, it might not be the best thing, but if you're looking for a styling products and you see a little carnauba in there, um, I wouldn't worry too much. Just see how the performance goes on your hair, but I don't think it'll damage your hair at all. Yeah, exactly. All right. Looks like we got time for one more question. And it's about one of my favorite topics. Marius says, does argan oil actually penetrate the hair shaft and does it do anything useful once it's inside? Well, I I don't think once it's inside is the important part. (laughs) I would have just cut the question off. Doesn't do anything useful, but that's just me being, being nasty. You know, I I love oils. Argan oil is not one of my favorite ones. Oh, I, I, it's not one of my favorite, uh, oils, but it is one of my favorite ones to talk about just because, uh, a few years ago, argan oil somehow came out of nowhere and just was this huge internet sensation, and it was just huge in the beauty business. And I've always been curious why that happened. I, I never really could figure out why that happened. Well, I have a friend in the sales industry, and he actually used to sell oils and stuff like that. And he said it was because some sales guy was sitting on a ton of it, and he was like, how do I move this stuff? I got to get rid of it. So they created this really sensational story about argan oil being Moroccan oil. Right. And it just took off from there. I remember seeing it. I mean, first of all, I don't know if that's true. It's right. That's just but who what knows? It sure, could be. Yeah, yes. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it might be but just re- apocryphal. <laughs> I do remember seeing an article a few years ago about the number of product launches with argan oil. Do you remember reading this article and had like a chart? Yeah. Is this, yeah. Right. And it was like in 2008. 11 products launched with argan oil in them in 2009, you know, 40 did. And then eventually in 2013, it was something like 13,000 products launched with argan oil. And then it was so ridiculous. Well, I remember doing a spot on the Dr. Oz show. Which, and one of the questions that we covered was with, about argan oil and whether it's good for your hair and such. And so that prompted me to look at the products that were on the market that advertised argan oil. And one of the one of the things that I found, nearly all of the best-selling argan oil products were actually just standard hair products that had silicones in them. And then, oh yeah, at the bottom there, there was the argan oil. So it, yeah, it was it was totally a a claims-driven ingredient, and they clearly weren't putting enough in there to to get uh, whatever benefit you might get from argan oil. Now, as far as what that benefit is. Um, you're going to get the same kind of benefits of putting argan oil on your hair that you'll get from, you know, most any other oil that is going to stay on your on the surface of your hair. Because one of the things that I looked for and didn't find any evidence was that argan oil can penetrate the hair. There was a study uh, done a few years back that compared oils and how they penetrated into the hair. And they looked at coconut oil, sunflower oil and mineral oil to see specifically whether these oils penetrated the hair. And what they found was that coconut oil was the only one that uh, penetrated the hair to a significant extent. Sunflower oils and the mineral oil both stayed pretty much on the surface of the hair. At least that's what this study found. Why do you think that was? Well, I think it's mostly related to the uh, the the, the, the nature of the oils. Now, if we talk about oils and what they are, oils are really blends of fatty acids. And fatty acids are just a chemist's way of saying uh, ingredients, a hydrocarbon ingredients that have a number of carbons stitched together with a bunch of hydrogen surrounding them. 
coconut oil is mostly made up of uh, molecules that have 12 carbons in them. And these are your, your lorics. And my thought is that those shorter chain uh, hydrocarbons are able to better penetrate the hair. Sunflower oil, for example, is a mostly a has 18 carbons in the hydrocarbons. And I think those longer uh, chains just don't penetrate as well. More evidence is that mineral oil, which has a lot longer chains, uh, over C26 and even higher, uh, really just stays on the surface. So it seems like the longer the chain length of the hydrocarbons, the less it's going to penetrate into the hair. That's, that's just my thoughts on it. Well, it certainly makes a lot of sense. The hair only has so much space for items to uh, travel and penetrate through in. And I think if you want to see anything, you know, what you need is time and a high concentration. And if these products that claim to be argan oil based, we won't name any brands if, you know, they really are what you've purported them to be, which is a whole lot of not argan oil. It's unlikely that, um, that A, the products will be of value, but B, you know, with a, a chain length of 18, that's pretty big. That's pretty big to try to get in the hair. Yeah, and if you look at argan oil, argan oil is mostly made up of C18s. Other, And that's that's uh, more like uh, sunflower oil, for example. Also, mm-hmm. uh, olive oil is made up of mostly C18s also, although it has a, a kinky double bond in there. So um, the bottom line is that argan oil is more similar to sunflower oil than... Uh, a penetrating oil like coconut oil. So I would expect it to behave more like sunflower oil. And the things that oils do on your hair uh, is that most of the oils that don't penetrate will coat the surface of your hair. And that can help with things like uh, the feel of it, the slip, the it could help a little bit with shine and it could help with uh, making combing easier. Yeah, it acts as a lubricant on the hair. Mm-hmm. And the downside of oils, though, is that they can also absorb, you know, particles that are in the air, uh, viruses, for example. <laughs> no, 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 just just pollutants and other things that are in the, in the air. It can stick on your hair, and so it can make your hair dirty more quickly. It can build up on your hair, uh, and it can be challenging to remove them, although most shampoos should easily remove uh, any kind of natural oils that you put in your hair. So at best, argan oil is going to coat the hair. It's not going to significantly penetrate. And like I said, most of the most of the products that are on the market right now that are using argan oil, they use it as a claims ingredient. They use other things like you know standard silicones or uh, cationic uh, polymers or surfactants to really get the main benefits of the products. What I don't like about argan oil is the chemistry that you're speaking about, C18 and such and such, it really relies on argan oil being stable to have the chemistry that it does when it's first cracked out of the nut. Mm -hmm. And argan oil is famous for having one of the worst oxidative stabilities on shelf. Once it's cracked from the nut, if you're having a a cold-pressed argan oil, stability is about six months from when you press it. So imagine Uh it has to get extracted. It has to get filled into some kind of container, transported from wherever it's harvested, sent to your raw material distributor, stored, partitioned out, sent to you. So by the time you purchase it, it's probably way exceeded the six months. 
even with really proper storage and addition of various antioxidants, uh, you're looking at 12 months best when stored in proper temperature conditions. So it's really famous for instability, and that has to do with oxidative species that are formed uh, once you start to press it, and it's just this big chain reaction. So I'm not a huge fan of it for that reason, um, seeing that. You know, if you have oxidized oil, what what good is that? That's not good. So. Exactly. Although it's still impressive how popular that was <laughs> so for such for such a short yeah. amount of time. <laughs> I think it uh, goes number two to CBD, right? Yeah, exactly. It was the old CBD. <laughs> All right, that brings us to the end of this show. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, If you get a chance, can you go over to iTunes and leave us a review there? That's going to help other people find the show and ensure that we have a full docket of beauty questions. Incidentally, if you want to get your question answered, feel free to record it on your smartphone, and then you can email that to us at thebeautybrains at gmail.com. You guys know I love audio questions. Also, follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at thebeautybrains2018. On Twitter, we're at the Beauty Brains, and we have a Facebook page. One more thing, the Beauty Brains are also on Patreon. If you want to support the show, Patreon is the best way to do that. This is going to help keep the show ad-free and is the best way to keep financial bias out of the show. So if you like what we do and you want to see us keep doing it, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe. Thanks again, everyone, for listening, and remember, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone. Kittens.